1: Hey Daniel, do you think scientists make good science fiction authors?
0: Oh, sometimes. I mean, Carl Sagan was a scientist and he wrote some really excellent science fiction. Yeah,
1: you're right. I am a big fan of Contact. But what do you think about the opposite? Do you think science fiction authors could make good scientists?
0: (laughs) Well, I will happily read their papers if they read my science fiction stories. (laughs) Sounds like
1: a fair trade, maybe. But do you think they could do real science? Do you think that after you know being immersed in a fictional world, you could actually sit down and, and deal with real numbers? I'm not sure, but I think they
0: already contribute in an important way
1: to actual science. Oh, yeah. Do they discover new particles? Or new kinds of
0: black holes? (laughs) Even better. They put crazy ideas into the heads of scientists who read their fiction. Oh, I see. And then you guys take all the credit, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe we can allow them to name the new particles in that case. (laughs) Or maybe there could be a joint Nobel Prize, you know, physics and literature. (laughs) That's right. And I win a Nobel Prize for the acceptance speech I give for my physics Nobel Prize.
1: Hi, I'm Jorge. I'm a cartoonist and the creator of Ph.D. Comics.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist and an aspiring science fiction wannabe. Oh, does that mean that you want to
1: be science fiction? (laughs) Like you want your
0: life to be science fiction or you want to write science fiction? Oh, I think all of the above. I'd love to write science fiction (laughs) and I'd love to live in a science fiction universe. I mean, one of the fun things about writing science fiction is imagining yourself in that universe, teleporting places, shooting ray guns. I mean, that's why people play with lightsabers, right?
1: Yeah, I am definitely I count myself an aspiring jetpack owner.
0: (laughs) I'm still hoping for that. But welcome to our podcast,
1: Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production
0: of iHeartMedia. In which we like to talk about the rules of the universe. We break them down for you. We explain to you how our universe works, what we're doing to figure out what those rules are, and whether they make sense at all. Yeah, and sometimes we like to talk about also the universe
1: that maybe doesn't exist. Or we like to talk about ideas that we don't know are true yet, but that they might be. Or that at least it's making people curious and it's tickling their imagination.
0: And this is an important part of understanding our universe is thinking about what other kinds of universes could there be how would the universe look if the laws of physics were a little different? Or what would the laws of physics have to look like in order to allow Jorge to have a jetpack and Daniel to have a lightsaber? So this is an important part of actual intellectual exploration of our universe is imagining new fictional universes. Yeah,
1: because, you know, I guess science isn't just, you know, hitting rocks together or breaking rocks apart and looking at data. You also kind of have to exercise your imagination, right? And and consider maybe what are possible crazy solutions that could explain what we're seeing.
0: That's right. And, you know, I know you've been out of academia for a while, but it's actually a very small fraction of our time we spend banging rocks together. <laughs> Sometimes you, you rub them together. <laughs> We've som- moved beyond the rock stage now. <laughs> oh, really? In particle physics, yeah. They're
1: just, they're, you're still banging rocks, Dan. They're just getting smaller and smaller. <laughs>
0: It's all rocks. It's rocks all the way down. Is that what you're saying?
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. What's a, I mean, isn't a proton kind of a rock, really? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I guess that makes me a rock and roll physicist.
1: Oh, there you go. <laughs> now That sounds like fiction as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I said I wanted to be a writer, so there you go. Anyway, we like to talk about these fictional universes and to understand how they work and to get in the minds of the people who create them. That's right. And so we have this series of
1: episodes in which we, or at least Daniel, interviews famous or well-known or popular science fiction authors and ask them about their world and about the physics of it and how they came up with all of their amazing ideas.
0: That's right, because when I read a science fiction novel, Part of the joy for me is figuring out what are the rules of this universe? What did they create? How does it work? And that's also the joy of physics. We are literally living in a universe where nobody is telling us the answers and we have to play detective and figure out what are the rules? How does this work? And so it's the same joy, but just encapsulated in a novel. And usually in a novel, it's more satisfying because you get some answers.
1: Also, your career doesn't depend on reading (laughs) the science fiction novels, so it's probably more relaxing.
0: That's right, and there are fewer rocks
1: involved in the novels. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, they're called asteroids. (laughs) Yeah, so today on the program, we'll be tackling the science fiction universe of Alistair Reynolds. All right, so Alistair Reynolds, he's uh, pretty well-known, right? as a science fiction or is he more he's more sort of
0: in the hard science fiction genre he definitely writes hard science fiction and he's sort of best known for his space operas he writes stories that take place across an entire galaxy in eons and eons of time and usually you're buried deep into the future upon layers and layers of crazy history yeah
1: and so to the other the question that's kind of interesting you and and that you asked him uh, i imagine in the interview is uh, can you write realistic science fiction about life in space like do do these books really portray what it's like to be
0: in space and to move around in space because being in space is tricky. It is tricky indeed. And for this set of books that we're talking about in today's podcast It's a trilogy starting with a book called Revenger. It takes place in a solar system sort of deep in the future. And he really thinks carefully about how you would navigate that solar system, how you would go from place to place, the fuel needs involved, how you would turn your guns to aim at another ship, how you would even know whether those ships are there. It's really fascinating. Mm. And you can hear that he is really thinking carefully about the physics and that's no coincidence. Yeah.
1: He, apparently he is inspired by, you know, stories of pirate ships and nautical stories.
0: And he wanted to bring that into the science fiction universe. That's right. And he himself is a physicist or was a working physicist. Mm. He has a PhD in astrophysics and he studied binary stars at the European Space Agency and then started writing on the side. So he comes into science fiction with a deep understanding of the science behind it. Mm. Hopefully his thesis wasn't fictional. I
1: imagine. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't.
0: <laughs> I hope he kept a careful wall between his fiction and
1: nonfiction. <laughs> yeah, and he's won a, a bunch of awards in, in in England and for his novels. And some of his stories have been adapted also to television. I actually I've seen a couple of
0: them realizing who it was. That's right. There's a whole series on Netflix called Love, Death and Robots that adapts a bunch of fun short stories and several of them are his. Yeah.
1: And this is one of your favorite writers, right, Daniel? I mean, you're definitely fanboying here when you talk to him.
0: Yes, that's right. He is one of my favorite writers. And one reason is that the physics of it is so good. It's so insightful and interesting Mm. and so real and so carefully thought out. And, you know, then on a personal note, it's just it's nice to see somebody who was a physicist make this amazing transition into being not just a published science fiction writer, but a well-known, well-respected, multi-award winning, international best-selling science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. So, hey, a guy can dream, right?
1: <laughs> You're yeah. like, somebody got out. <laughs> There's hope for me yet.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I cannot dispute that was my reaction. I finished his first book that I read and I thought, wow, what an amazing book. And then I read the about the author at the end and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy could have been me or I could be this guy.
1: Yeah. So uh, it, it sounds like the physics in these books are really cool. And again, the series is called Revenger, the Revenger trilogy. The first book is called Revenger. Which is uh, not the sequel to The Avengers.
0: <laughs> no, it should be. It should be. The Avengers reboot. <laughs> yeah, And
1: so uh, let's dive into his world. What is his world like? It's, is it in the future, the near future,
0: millions of years into the future? So it takes place in our solar system, but then millions and millions of years in the future. And it's so far in the future that the sense of history is sort of lost. Like you're mm. deep into the future, but you don't really know how the universe that he puts you in has been assembled. And mm. it looks very different from our solar system.
1: Like did something happen that caused all the history books to disappear or
0: what? It's just sort of like Or it's just so so far. It's just so far in history, yeah. And humans have left the solar system and then come back and recolonized it multiple times. What? What do you mean? They left and then they came back? Yeah, well, this is a sense of mystery in this book is that you don't know the full story. You just hear dribs and drabs Mm -hmm. and the characters themselves don't know the full story. Like, do we know how many times humans have colonized Europe? We know there were waves and waves and waves from Africa. We don't know the full story, even though it was sort of us who did it, right? And in that same sense you imagine millions of years into the future, you might lose the history, lose the written records of why humanity went to the stars and why everybody died out in the solar system and why they came back. And so this is that sort of to the extreme. Right. That sounds pretty
1: interesting. And you were telling me that they, they disassembled the
0: planets in the solar system. Yeah. So the solar system is unrecognizable. The only thing you might recognize is the sun, which is still there, but they have taken apart all of the planets. What? And use them to build like a bunch of habitats. And so you have like lace worlds and little Dyson spheres and all sorts of structures you can live on. But they've turned the eight planets into like hundreds or thousands of essentially space stations. Like mini planets. Yeah, sort of like mini planets. But you don't, uh. but a planet is very inefficient, right? You don't really need the core of it. And so they mine, I guess, all of the materials from the solar system and built all these crazy different shapes and structures for people to live on.
1: Oh, you you can create more like surfaces to live on if you break
0: the earth into pieces. Exactly. Take the earth and sort of like unwrap it, unroll it. You can get a lot more surface area. And then people can be creative, right? And you can have like lots of weird layers or you could, uh, you know, just live on the inside of a sphere or you could have a tube or a ring, right? You could have all sorts of crazy Uh, stuff.
1: I guess my question right away is how did they deal with the gravity then, right? Because if you, you have a smaller planet, And the gravity is less. So how do you walk around? Yeah.
0: So some of these things have many black holes at their centers. Of course.
1: (laughs) Well, obviously that's the solution. What do you mean? They, They made a black hole? They captured a black hole?
0: Well, you know, humanity in this story is sort of just living on these found structures. They've discovered them. They think humans made them millions of years ago, but they no longer have the technology to create them. So they don't really understand them either. So they know there are black holes at the center of them. He never really explains how they were made because, again, that's attributable to the ancient lost art of black hole manufacturing. Uh,
1: okay, so they're using a black hole there. And so it all takes place in our solar system, just in the future.
0: Yes, our solar system, very far into the future. But most of these things feel more like space stations or spaceships than real planets. I mean, you can walk around on them, but none of them are as vast as a planet. Mm. It's almost like... You know, if you took all the continents on Earth and broke them up into little islands. Mm, it's like a giant archipelago. Yeah, exactly. And then oh. you have to figure out how to get from one to the other. And that's another whole fascinating aspect of his universe. Oh, I
1: see. This is where the like the sailing analogy comes in, like you know, the nautical aspect of it, space nautical mechanics. Yeah,
0: it's a lot like space pirates. They get around from one to the other using solar sails. Because it's very inefficient to use like rocket propulsion. You need a huge amount of fuel to get around. And so they take advantage of the energy of the sun. And they have these small ships. Each one is, you know, like the size of a current human airplane, like a modern jetliner. Mm -hmm. And to get that thing around, you'd need like square and kilometer after square kilometer of solar sail. So these ships are tiny, but then surrounded by these huge sails that capture the energy of the sunlight and use that to get around the solar system.
1: Oh, and they're not uh, solar panels, right? They actually like they bounce off the the energy of the sun.
0: That's right. They're much more like sails than panels. They don't absorb the energy and then store it in a battery. They actually like reflect those photons and use that to get a little kick. Mm.
1: And there's also a battles out in space, right? Between these sailing ships.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of these battles Mm. and they have these rail guns that they shoot at each other and a lot of it is about staying silent, staying hidden, you know, not announcing your location. And so they try to, keep as dark as possible so nobody can see where you are and stay as quiet as possible. They try not to like let their rail guns get too hot because then they glow and other people can spot them. And it really gave me the feeling of reading nautical fiction from like the 1800s. It's all about like turning about and getting your cannons pointed in the right direction and making sure you're upwind and a lot of this very strategic thinking limited by the physics of ships. And in this case, it's limited by the physics of sun jammers, which is what he calls them. Mm,
1: but it- I guess if you're hanging out in space, don't you have wouldn't you have like a lot of energy? You couldn't you have some a little bit of rocket boost there here and there?
0: You would need to. I mean, it's much easier to use solar sails to get like further away from the sun. Mm-hmm. It's much more difficult to get closer to the sun. And so they do have rockets also, which they need to refuel, but they use that sparingly because, you know, while there's always sunlight to capture, just like there's always wind on a sailboat, you know, the, the engine for their rockets needs fuel and that's a limited quantity. Mm, cool. And there's a, a lot
1: of mystery as well. There's like ancient technology that they, they keep discovering.
0: Yeah, there's been like eight or 10 layers of occupation from humanity. And the previous layers put a lot of their fancy tech into these like locked boxes, which open what? on regular intervals. Like every thousand years or every hundred years, they will open up and you can like crawl in there and try to grab some treasure and then crawl out before you get stuck. And so there's like a lot of these devices around that play a role in the story that nobody understands their science. They're like leftover from a previous layer of civilization. And it's like found treasure. And so a lot of the book, which is just really good storytelling, is like sailing around from these treasure islands to treasure islands, capturing things, stealing them from other people, and then, of course, getting revenge. (laughs) On your revenger.
1: (laughs) So they, they find old technology and they can still make it work or it just works? you know, it, like it just turns on and you can use
0: it. Yeah, it just turns on and you can use it. And, you know, some of it is inert and they don't understand why, but a lot of it they can just use. You know, they have like special armor that makes you invisible and they don't know why. And they have, you know, a t- technology that lets them see things that are far away. And mm. they also, one of the coolest bits is how they communicate from ship to ship mm-hmm. is that they they find these skulls of alien beings from the deep past.
1: Non-humans. So, so I Non-humans. guess uh, just to clarify,
0: everyone in the book is human. but so they're just super future humans. They're super future humans. There are a few aliens also, just a few characters who are aliens. So in the book, we have met aliens mm-hmm. and can communicate with them. And also mm-hmm. we have the skulls of ancient long extinct aliens. Oh. And these skulls, have this property that they can like communicate between each what? other. The dead skulls can talk. Yeah, they can, they have some sort of like telepathic ability. And if you like mm-hmm. wire into it and attach, you know, your head to these skulls with wires and somebody else does it the same way, like on the other side of the solar system, then you can communicate back and forth using this sort of like, you know, hopped up neural telepathy. Wow. And it's sort of awesome because it's like piggybacking on what these aliens maybe could have done. And we don't really know. And like, are there tendrils of those aliens brains still in their skull? Why does it work at all? And it just barely works. It's very difficult. Yeah. But it's sort of like, you know, using a ham radio. You don't really understand it. You sort of connect your brain to it. You tweak the knobs. You see who else is out there. And so I I think that he's trying to capture not just the sense of like sailing on the open seas, but also like limited communication abilities.
1: All right. Wow. That's a lot of a lot of interesting ideas here. And so let's dive into the physics of it, whether or not some of these things are possible or impossible or maybe in our near future. But first, let's take a quick break.
0: Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable.
2: All right, we're
1: talking about Alistair Reynolds' science fiction trilogy, Revenger, and the incredibly interesting ideas in it, including alien skulls that can make you telepathic. (laughs) Somehow. Somehow. Like a ham radio. Like if you put a ham radio on your head. (laughs)
0: that's right or if you had like an internet connection in your brain I wouldn't recommend that though you'd probably get hacked by Russians I think
1: uh, I think people's phones spend so much time near our heads that it's probably <laughs> might just as well be connected
0: we're basically there
1: yeah alright so what's the physics of this series Daniel so first of all there's planet disassembly they break apart the planet And is that
0: possible? Could you like, can I split Jupiter into two? You know, I think it really is possible. I think that it's a problem that's technologically very difficult. It's, you know, engineeringly difficult, as you would say. But physics wise, there's no reason why you can't. I mean, think about the solar system as just a bunch of raw materials and use that to build whatever you like. It would just take a huge amount of energy and planning
1: to like break the the, even the Earth, which is a small planet. How would you even break it apart?
0: Yeah, well, you would start by building, you know, a lot of solar panels and use that to capture the sun's energy Mm -hmm. and then use that energy to mine more raw materials off the planets. Probably you would start with Mercury because Mercury is very close to the sun. So there's a lot of energy there Mm. and has low gravity. It's a hot property. (laughs) Uh, It has low gravity. So it's easy to build stuff on the surface and launch it into space. Mm. And it's metal rich. It's like solid iron core. It has a lot of oxygen on it. And so you start by disassembling Mercury and using it to build like essentially a Dyson swarm. Remember we talked... On the show once about a Dyson sphere, like a huge superstructure that envelops the mm-hmm. entire sun. This is basically like that, except instead of one big superstructure, which is kind of implausible because it would break up, you build a lot of smaller ones. Oh,
1: and so they did this, the ancient humans.
0: Apparently the ancient humans did this. Yeah, they disassembled, but not just Mercury. Mercury. Also, all of the planets. There are no original planets left over. What? It's a completely different solar system. Completely, yeah, exactly. You know, and wow. they redesigned it. You know, you come, you buy a house, and you redo the kitchen. They redid everything. They stripped <laughs> this thing down to studs.
1: Oh, I see. So it's not like they they took Jupiter and broke it. It's more like they they just like mined it. They like bro- You know, little by little, they took chunks and put it into other parts of the solar
0: system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the hardest thing I think about the physics is that the solar system is mostly hydrogen. Like, of course, the sun is mostly hydrogen, but even the other planets is mostly Jupiter. Jupiter is the most mass of anything, and it's mostly hydrogen and some helium. Heavy metals, like the kind of things we find on Earth and Mercury, are much more rare. And so you don't want to build your superstructure or your swarm out of hydrogen. And so I think that's the limiting factor, the amount of surface you can build is not just limited by the mass of the stuff in the solar system, but the amount of heavy metals you need to make it.
1: Oh, I see. So maybe there, there aren't enough? Or do you think he, did he actually count how, many, how much metal there is in the solar system?
0: Yeah, I think he did a bit of a careful accounting. And I'm imagining that he used the hydrogen to form those black holes. Like if you can't build something out of it and you need to make a black hole, well, the black hole is just a big pile of stuff that's gotten compressed down into a small area. So take Jupiter and turn it into a black hole or a few black holes and you could put those at the center of your little structures and they would provide enough gravity.
1: Oh, and that's why you would do it? Just to have more gravity?
0: Yeah, if you want gravity on these structures, then you need a lot of mass. And if you have a lot of mass you can't use to actually build the structures, right? All this hydrogen and helium, then you might as well use it to make the black holes.
1: I guess it would give you like Earth-like gravity in a small asteroid kind of yes
0: precisely because it's much more dense than earth and so you can get earth-like gravity Mm. and you wouldn't want all of jupiter in one black hole because that's way too much gravity right the gravity on jupiter is crushing compared to the gravity on earth oh but you can make little ones yeah you could if you have this power you could divide jupiter up into a hundred little black holes and use that to provide gravity on a hundred little structures it
1: seems kind of dangerous though because like what if you fall into it or what if your, <laughs> you, know, you know, what if your structure touches the edge of it?
0: Yeah, well, you're worried about the people, you know, living on this thing. I'm worried about the people manufacturing it, you know, like mm. I hope they're they're being careful and they're wearing hard hats when they're manufacturing black holes. Oh, yeah,
1: because if you touch a black hole, that's it.
0: <laughs> that's it, man. There's no coming back. You are not pulling oh, your hand back out of those mm. things.
1: Okay, so then what about the solar sailing? That's pretty plausible and realistic.
0: That's totally plausible. Solar sailing is a real thing. I mean, there's real physics there. It's just a big sheet of very, very light material. And when a photon bounces off of it, it pushes on it. It's like if somebody throws a ball and it bounces off of you, it's giving you a little push. And photons have no mass, but they do have momentum. And so when they bounce off of a mirror, for example, they are giving that mirror a little push. If you put a mirror out in space, the sun's photons will push it through space. Right.
1: Yeah, we have a whole episode about solar sailing. If you search our archives... And the problem is that a solar sail helps you move away from the sun, but it doesn't help you move towards the sun.
0: (laughs) That's right. And there was this really fun moment in that podcast when I was being so excited about solar sails. And then you were like, well, but what about turning? Can you turn? (laughs) 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 I'd never thought about that before. Oops. (laughs) Uh, But it turns out you can, right? You can turn with a solar sail if you angle it because it means the Mm. photons get reflected off like to the side a little bit, Mm -hmm. which gives you a push sideways. And you can't use a solar sail to go in towards the sun, but you can use it to like slow yourself down. Like say you're in orbit around the sun and you want to go to a closer orbit, you can sort of angle your sail to bleed off some of your velocity so that the sail is pushing away against the direction you're moving in orbit. And that'll help you fall into a closer orbit. It can't actually pull you in. Only the sun's gravity can pull you in. Photons can just provide an outward or sideways force. But so going in is harder than going out, but it is possible.
1: I guess it makes me kind of think about how you would would navigate a solar system where everything is broken up. Do you think that that those ancient humans or aliens, when they broke up the planets, they think about like creating stable orbits and, and things like that? Or is the whole solar system just this chaotic mess?
0: No, they planned it very carefully. It's called the constellation and these little habitats are all in different orbits that sometimes get close to each other and sometimes further away. And some of these things are on larger orbits because some people like living out in the middle of the darkness and then coming back occasionally every 100 years or something. Mm. And so you have lots of options and these things sort of get closer and further apart. So it's easier to jump from one to the Uh, other.
1: And doesn't it take years to go between these
0: islands or colonies? Well, he, I think, set the whole thing sort of close enough to the sun that these sun jammers are powerful and distances are not so far, but it does take weeks, right? You're not like teleporting from from place to place. And that really is a factor in the story that sometimes it takes weeks or months to get from one habitat to the other. Mm. And, you know, it sort of feels like ancient ships, right? You got into a boat, you don't just get to America six hours later, you know, after watching three movies, it took months or sometimes years to get around wow. the world. And so we sort of captured that by transplanting it onto the solar system. Can you get space scurvy also? <laughs> you can, there are versions of that, yes. Oh, that. really?
1: Huh. All right. And then the last bit of science fiction here is this skull communication. Like somehow the skulls can communicate telepathically, even though they're old and dead.
0: Yeah, that's right. And as I was reading it, I was wondering if he was going for faster than light communication here mm. because it does seem fairly rapid. But he's also he's kept the whole universe of his book barely tightly around the sun. And so the distances are not large. Oh, so it see. might be faster than light, or it might just be like as fast as mm. light. Um, but you know. Could aliens have some telepathic ability to communicate? Certainly, right? There's nothing... Physics can say no to telepathy. Perhaps you can really generate some signals in your brain. Sure. I mean, think about the engineering. Generate some signals in your brain that somebody else can read. I mean,
1: basically a walkie talkie.
0: Yeah. Yes, exactly. Telepathy is just another way to communicate. It's like, I already do that. I generate signals in my brain, which create waves in the air, which go into your ear, which generate signals in your brain. Oh, my so, goodness. You know, sound is telepathy. What from that is point. this
1: world we're living in then? You just approved, you just physics approved telepathic aliens.
0: I don't see why it's not possible. You know, the bit that stretches it is like, well, could you use their skulls to do telepathy after they are long dead? I don't know, but hey, it was a fun book. All right, well,
1: so uh, you actually got to talk to him and we're going to play the interview for everyone here in in a minute here. Um, But what are some of the questions you you asked him?
0: I asked him what motivated this and whether he was interested in keeping the physics real. And then, of course, I asked him how to become a science fiction author if you were a physicist. Hypothetically. Hypothetically,
1: of course. Yes, because (laughs) we all know your dream is to be a podcast host.
0: (laughs) That's right. One day. One day. day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, here is Daniel's interview with Alistair Reynolds, author of the Revenger science fiction trilogy.
0: So I'm very happy and honored to have with us today on the podcast, the multi-award winning author and former physicist, Alistair Reynolds. Alistair, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Good afternoon, Daniel. My,
3: my very great pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And do you consider yourself a former physicist or is somebody a physicist forever?
3: Uh, I thought about this a lot, actually. And uh, I used to say I was a former scientist, but no, I think it's sort of in the blood. It's a sort of way, of, a way of looking at the world, that you, you don't just cast off the day you stop being paid to do science. So I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a scientist for the rest of my life.
0: <laughs> and tell us a little bit about your background. How did you come to be a science fiction writer? How did you, what was your education in?
3: Uh, it's Sort of two, two sort of parallel strands right through my life it was an interest in space and science and also an interest in sort of science fiction. And they've just been there for as long as I have. And uh, I started writing stories from the point where I could hold a pen. And, and I just never stopped, really. So r- right through my uh, early education, the sort of point where I decided I wanted to may- maybe try and become a physicist, there was also, also the, the creative writing going on. And then, I guess, I, I think it's when I was about 16, I, I decided I would try and take the, the writing more seriously. So I started reading about the ways into publication, um, magazines, that kind of thing. Never... Never thinking that would be a career option, but I thought it would be something I could do, you know, as seriously as a lot of other science fiction writers who had proper jobs as well, mm-hmm. but they were also sort of successful writers in their own right. Yeah, but I, so I also kept on studying um, to, to become a scientist as well right through that period. But there was never a point where I woke up one day say okay, I'm gonna be a writer. <laughs> uh, it was always there.
0: And what exactly was your area of focus in science?
3: I wanted, um, so I did a degree in astronomy and physics at Newcastle, and I didn't really have particular sense of what direction I wanted to go in when I started that degree. I just wanted to be a scientist. In fact, what I really wanted to be was an astronaut. Um, And I thought, this is going going back to sort of the early to mid-1980s. I thought, by the time I've become a professional scientist, there'll be sort of um, lunar observatories, you know, radio telescopes on the dark side of the moon and all that kind of stuff. So I thought, Bill, it, it it will be um you'll go into space just by being an astronomer, kind of like the Antarctic uh, surveys kind of thing. So I thought that'd be a good way to get in space. But no, I, I I did a degree, and by the end of the degree, I kind of I was taking an interest in cosmology, I suppose, and particle physics. I was very interested in things like the nature of the neutrino and the solar neutrino problem, which were things that weren't really resolved in in the mid '80s. And I started getting interested in, I suppose, the early Stories about dark matter, and you know, really sort of fund- how fundamental particle physics mapped onto cosmology and things like that. But that's a really hot and very popular area of astronomy. That mm-hmm. Everyone wants to go into, you know. So I, 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 didn't really have the sort of mathematical chops to, to do that. I don't think. Um, but I sort of segued into stellar astronomy. Uh, so my PhD was on the, mathemat- or the 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 properties of interacting binary stars. Particularly uh, a class of binary star where you have a star that's rather heavy in relationship to the sun, sort of 10, 10 to twenty solar masses, and then the other partner in the binary would be a neutron star. And um, these are these are sort of high mass X ray binaries, and there's lots of different types of them. But many of them have rather short orbital periods, so you can study the the orbital cycle over a few days, which makes them good targets for say short campaigns on big telescopes. So so you would Aim to go to Australia or Hawaii or somewhere like that and bag four nights of observations on a number of these different high mass X-ray binaries. And the um, the big sort of topic that was of interest was the limiting mass of the neutron star because there's all sorts of theories that sort of said what the what the mass of the neutron star ought to be, but some of the observations that have been done in the sort of 60s and 70s were a little bit um, sketchy, you know. So there was some question about whether the neutron stars were were lighter than than they should have been.
0: Very cool stuff.
3: It was cool. Yeah. It was really interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let me ask you some questions to get to know how you think about the universe. Do you think the universe is really, really big or actually literally infinite? I think
3: my, my sort of take on it is probably just bog standard modern cosmology with, um, you know, um, a big bang, <laughs> inflationary epoch, whatever you want to call it. And then we sort of, add, you know, 13 and a half billion years later, we're, we're, we're here with uh, an observ- an observable universe, which is um, bigger than the age of the universe multiplied by, by, by years, which some people have trouble wrapping their heads around, but not infinite. Um, so, yeah, I, t- I think we live in a sort of bounded universe, but I'm not a zealot about it.
0: To me, the actual infinite universe makes the most sense because... Uh, it's hard to imagine having a bound, a bound in space or a bound in matter seem harder to explain than actual infinity, even though infinity is difficult for humans to wrap their minds around. It may actually be natural. You know, the the universe is no stranger to bizarreness. So, but let me ask you another question. Do you think that human interstellar flight will ever be a reality? Is that something people will, will ever actually do? Do you think we'll be stuck in our solar system forever? <sighs>
3: I mean, there's like so many different levels to that question. It's like, could, is, is there a technical capability that we could achieve if we if we so wanted? That to me is probably a fairly firm yes. In that we already know a little bit about, say, that, you know, we could build a, a fusion spacecraft um, based on fairly well established principles that could get us up to about 10% of the speed of light. So we might have trouble slowing down, but at least we could take a you know, go to Ballard Star in sort of 40 years or something like that using technology that's not absolutely beyond beyond the sort of pale. When we sort of talk about sort of the stuff in my book, sort of like relativistic interstellar travel at 1G where you sort of get up to the speed of light and then you decelerate again and you have sort of significant uh, time dilation factors, that's a much bigger ask. <laughs> and I, I think that's like, if, if that's even technically feasible, it's probably thousands of years in the future. But one one of the sort of things that does sort of Trouble me slightly. I'm not sure. I I mean, my feeling is that once we have the technical capability to maybe do interstellar, crude interstellar exploration, we might not have the will to do it anymore because in in parallel with that development scientifically in in terms of scientific and engineering capabilities, presumably our knowledge of the universe is going to expand as well. And we may have what we consider to be a completely comprehensive, self-consistent picture of our position in in, in, in the galaxy. And the galaxy within 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 the larger universe. Now we may we may just reach a point where we just not we're not interested in going any further than our solar system because we've we've essentially established to our own satisfaction that we know what's out there. And I think when, when, you know already we know a lot more about the broad conditions of many solar systems. We know about thousands of exoplanets in different solar systems. So we have a you know a, a sharpening sense of what's out there not just in our immediate interstellar neighborhood, but out to thousands of light years with this sort of transit observation. And as that picture firms up and, and develops over the next century, it may, we may think, think realize that actually Earth-like planets are incredibly rare, and all that's out there is just more stuff like the solar system, you know, more, more sort of um, versions of Mercury and Jupiter, and would we be sufficiently motivated to explore if we already sensed that we had, we had all the answers already? So I don't know.
0: Maybe it depends on what we see then.
3: Well, if, if we saw something really interesting, if we sort of resolved a structure on a planet, I mean, I don't necessarily mean an artificial structure, but if we resolved, say, a continent with green bits or something like that in a blue sea, then, then, then that would be a significant motivator for some form of exploration. But I think it's far from settled that there will be this grand, you know, the default, science fiction future is that we go into the solar system, sort of mess around there for a few hundred years, and then we develop interstellar capability, sometimes even faster than light capability, and we burst out into the universe. And that's like our sort of cosmic destiny. Um, I'm happy to play with that in science fictional terms as a writer. It's got There's a lot of literary fun to be had from that premise, but I'm probably a little bit more doubtful about it now than... than I was when i started my
0: career and so that leads me to my my next question about the fermi paradox in your books there's almost always aliens and there's been contact but in some cases the galaxy is like mostly wiped out by some prehistoric galactic battle so what is your take on our current situation yeah. like why haven't the aliens visited in your opinion here in our in our actual physical galaxy
3: uh, again i always say What day of the week is it? And I'll give you a different answer. (laughs) Uh, I mean, for a long time, because I I read this very um, book that a lot of science fiction writers read in the 80s, which was The Anthropic Cosmological Principle by Barrow and Tipler. And and the sort of takeaway message of that is that the reason, the the, the, the sort of explanation for the Fermi paradox is that there's no one out there because the mechanics of interstellar colonization using relatively slow propulsion systems, but say, replicating robots and things like that, mean that you could, in effect, colonize the entire galaxy in a very short span of time, much less than a million years. And that's just a tiny fraction of the existing age of the galaxy. So the argument is that that only would have had to have happened once for the sort of evidence of it to be obvious. There's been many, many opportunities for it to happen, and it doesn't seem to have happened. Therefore, there's no aliens out there, apart from maybe single cell slime, things like that. I took that as gospel for a long time, I thought it was a very sort of persuasive argument but i'm not I'm not so smitten with it now because I think one also has to think if if there were imagine that we had been visited by superintelligent alien beings at some point in our history, I think it would be an absolutely trivial problem for them to conceal all evidence of their activity. I, I think they could even be here now we wouldn't see them mm. that's why I, in a way it's why I take I don't take UFOs seriously because I think any any extraterrestrial civilization that wanted to visit our skies, could do so without being detected. They would just that would just be a trivial little technological problem for them just to avoid detection. So yeah I kind of haven't really answered that have I um, I think the Fermi paradox is it, one possible answer is that we're alone. That's, that's sort of um, quite an interesting one to me. I don't find it depressing but it's just interesting. But the, but the other one is that really when we speculate about the motives and activities of highly advanced extraterrestrial beings we're, we're, you know, we're really, we don't really have a lot of experience to base our suppositions on.
0: It's a lot of speculation from one data point
3: It is an enormous amount of speculation yeah well I, mean, I quite like the idea that I mean someone did the mathematics on this about you know what are the odds of finding say a, a single alien artifact in the solar system if you had like an alien civilization somewhere else out in the galaxy. Uh, at some point, some of their space junk will sort of wander away from their system, I and mean, then you know there might be sort of like a spanner on the moon or something like that. So I, I think it will be, I mean, uh, well worth keeping our eyes open as we as we sort of move out through the solar system.
0: I had hopes for um, Oumuamua being a bit of space junk passing through the yeah. system, but unfortunately, it doesn't look that way.
3: I know, no, no, it's just a dirty comet or something like that. Yeah.
0: This is super fun, and I have more questions for our guest, science fiction author Alistair Reynolds. But first, let's take a quick break. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable.
2: All
0: right, we're back, and I'm talking to Alistair Reynolds, science fiction author of the trilogy Revenger. So, then let's turn to um, this novel that's the topic of our episode today, which is actually your trio of novels, this Revenger series. And uh, in this book, we're sort of in a world where the old planets have been deconstructed into a vast series of artificial worlds, and the ships that move between them operate on solar sails. It's, It's a fascinating topic, and it felt to me very much like a novel that could almost be set in a bunch of pirate ships navigating between islands in the 1800s or something. What gave you the idea to use this concept term? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what made you uh, want to write this book? Where did this idea come from? Did you start from the science concept of solar sails or did you start from the story and look for the right setting?
3: I actually had two ideas that were sitting on my computer for a long, long time and we're talking sort of 10, 10, 15 years because I quite often I have a lot of ideas on the back burner which is I think a lot of writers are like that because writing is a bit like a conveyor belt. You know, you write one novel and you've, you've got to kind of have some ideas germinating for the next one. Um, so I write a lot of stuff that's very sort of note, you know, notes and sort of uh, ideas to myself on the computer that don't necessarily go anywhere for years and years. Um, the, fir- w- the first sort of part of that was that I tried to write a set of stories about explorers breaking into alien structures where they had a certain random time limit where they had to get in, get the treasure and get out, sort of Indiana Jones stuff, but they didn't really know how long that that they would have. So it was very sort of high risk, sort of like safe cracking, but with an element of alien, big dumb objects and things like that in it. And I thought there's definitely something in that. There's some mileage in that idea, but I couldn't really get it to catch fire. And I tried telling it within some of my other literary universes. It just didn't happen for one reason or another, but I I still had the idea on my hard drive. And then again, about 15 years ago, I, I, I really liked the idea. Um, I mean, there was a science fiction writer, you're probably aware of, who had a big burst of productivity in the 60s, a guy called Larry Niven, and he, he wrote a bunch of stories about, well, it kind of goes back to that thing we were talking about, of the manifest destiny going into the solar system and then we move out into, into, into interstellar space. And, but his stories were, were quite good fun because by the time we had uh, an interstellar society, We'd met lots of different alien civilizations, and some of them were trading their technology with them. Um, so what I quite liked about the, the, the Larry Niven stories, the known space stories, was that you'd have a sort of spacecraft, but bits of it would be made by one set of aliens, and you know the, the puppeteers would make the hulls because they were very good at making indestructible material, you know, and then there'd be some other system supplied by someone else, and it was a real sort of cosmopolitan, quite a fun and, and colourful sort of civilization. I always liked I liked the spirit of that. And I thought I really want to put my own spin on it, so I started coming up with notes for um, a set of stories that were set in a Dyson swarm. So, uh, uh, not not a sphere around a star, but uh, a, a literal um, globe of lots of little micro worlds. I thought, what if rather than deal with the people who built it, what if some human explorers sort of stumbled on long after it was constructed, and in fact after it had sort of fallen into ruin, and then they could have a sort of little micro civilization where they're playing amongst the, these. Enigmatic leftovers from sort of previous glory civilizations, uh, glory days. But you can see, so that that was an idea that didn't go anywhere either. But then a long, long time later, I I, I sort of spotted that the, those two ideas could be sort of jammed together and made something else. And then the, the sort of third of the two ingredients, you know, <laughs> I just mentioned, um was just a, a long-standing love for nautical fiction, and uh, so that's that's where all the sort of um, the, the pirate. High treasure on the seven seas and all that stuff comes from. I just, I just love that stuff. I've steeped in it, and I'd always wanted to write a sort of science fiction pastiche of, of sort of the age of fighting sail, something that sort of went back to Robert Stevenson, also a lot of the sort of twentieth-century writers who, who did stories about uh, sailing ships. And like that. So just it, it all just came together. And then what I quite liked was that because you're, the whole action is only confined to. A volume about the size of the Earth's orbit. That was quite important. So it's 16 light seconds wide, this human civilization, even though there's thousands and thousands of planets within that sort of uh, sphere. I thought, well, within that bound, you could just about get around using solar cells. And, you know, I thought, well, the Earth's orbit takes us around the sun once a year. So that'll be the rule of thumb. It takes about a year to get from one side to the other of this. Uh, Body of worlds, uh, and I fudged it because solar sails are very good at get. You know, getting away from the sun is, is obviously trivially easy with a solar sail. You just use the light pressure. Tacking inwards is more difficult. But I read a paper about using angular momentum effects to sort of tack your way deeper into a gravity well. So if that's all I need. The rest of it's just just pure hand wave. <laughs> Ion drives in there, just so I could sort of have a get-out clause that you know, <laughs> if anyone were to say this is t- totally impossible using solar sails. They've also got ion capability. They just prefer not to use it because the solar cells, solar sailing comes for free. As soon as you turn on the ion drive, you're burning fuel,
0: money. And so, how important is it to you that there's always sort of a physics explanation for everything that happens in your novel? Is it critical to you that you have a physically self-consistent universe, even if you get to tweak the laws of it a little bit?
3: It's not colossally important, and it varies quite strikingly, I would say, from one universe to another. I mean the the two. Sets of books that I'm probably best best known for, the, the books I wrote early in my career, which I've returned to, set in the revelation universe. which on one level is quite grounded in hard physics because it has this implacable rule that you can't travel faster than light. And I tried to work out all the relativistic effects correctly, and I tried to do the, the sort of dynamics of planetary systems and atmospheres as, as, as realistic as I could get it with my own limitations, and and at the same time tell a story that was hopefully of interest to in more than one person. But even within that, there's sort of crazy science creeps in, there's sort of tachyon signaling from the future, inertialist drives, that kind of thing, even a bit of time travel. So the Revenge stuff is even more like that because you have this, on the foreground, the humans use a technology that's broadly familiar to our own. You know, So they have rockets for short distance navigation. And I was thinking of real buck rogers rockets here so they're like sort of bullet shaped cylinders with little fins on the back and and rocket motors real with, with portholes and rivets as well that was important to have lots of rivets <laughs> uh, but that's like within within our technological sort of horizons and the ships not outlandish in the sense that they use solar cells but i didn't I didn't time myself down to i mean if, if you sort of do the math so I said right my ships are about the size of a 737. that's that's what i Decided because I wanted them to be big enough that you could sort of have a bit of drama within the compartments, you know, maybe room enough for a crew of 10 or 12 or something like that. But I didn't want them to be sort of enormous space dreadnoughts dreadnought sort of kilometers long. You know, 737 is good. It's about the size of a, of, a, of a galleon or something like that. But the amount of area of solar sail you need to accelerate, even a 737, to any, you know, any kind of acceleration. The accelerations in the book in the, in, of the ships in the books are quite low by a, price of the science fictional standard. It's sort of like, a, I don't know, a third of a tenth of a G or something like that. But you would need an enormous collecting area to do that. So I, I just didn't want to go down that road of scrupulously fact-checking myself, because cause fundamentally, these books are about the spirit of adventure, a sense of drama, a, an atmosphere, the, the, the sort of mix of noir, noir sort of fiction and nautical fiction and a bit of gothic horror coming in there. And I, and I didn't really want them to be paradigmatic hard SF books. That's why there's. So the science is kind of crazy as well. When, when there's stuff that humans operate, you know, utilize, there's alien technologies and former human technologies left over, even though I never use the word human in any of the three books. But they have access to weird things that they don't really understand how they work. Uh, and I. And I as a writer, put as little explanation as I can get, as I can get away with on the page.
0: Tell me a little bit about the the bones that they use to do faster than light communication. Is this something you imagine might one day be possible with some crazy alien tech in our civilization? Or you think faster than light communication is totally out of bounds for humanity?
3: Well, I think I, I, I kind of fudged, I, I kept it, I never resolved to my own satisfaction whether the skulls work faster than light. The humans don't really know because they're because they're operating within this sort of relatively small volume of space. It's not apparent to them whether they whether they're instantaneous or not. I think perhaps perhaps they are kind of superluminal. But actually, the, the, the genesis of the skulls idea was that originally to go back to this idea of humans utilizing bits of alien technology. Originally, the whole ships were going to be skulls. So it was just like you're going to have like a 300 foot long discarded skull from some alien. You find floating in space, presumably some long vanished star-faring alien. And I like the idea was the humans sort of get these skulls and they sort of scoop out all the gunk that's left over, and then put rocket motors on them or whatever, and then they just fly these skulls around. And I, and I was really going with this, and then I went to see Guardians of the Galaxy, and quite I think some, at some point in this film they go to this sort of I think it's like asteroid mines or something like that, and their base is a skull. It's just floating in a nebula. And I I just thought, I can't do it now because it's been done. You know, they've had a big space skull that's been done. So then I downscoped and I thought, well, if if the ships can't be skulls, then then we'll have something inside them that uses the the idea of these alien skulls. And I was just thinking about old-fashioned crystal radio sets, you know, and a, a little bit of that and a little bit of sort of Ouija boards just to keep it spooky. But really it was just to get a sort of slightly macabre, gothic vibe into the stories. And I lo- and it gave the crews another specialization the idea that he needed um, people with this particular talent to to be able to get a signal out of the skull. But I didn't really know how whether that would just be a little background detail mm. when I started the books.
0: Well, to me, it seemed really evocative of a lot of the other things I like about your other novels. The fact that the protagonists in the book are always surrounded by leftover bits from ancient civilizations. Like there's constantly, there's vast quantities of previously understood but now lost knowledge and i like that because it resonates with the way i feel about our universe that we're surrounded constantly with information about the universe that we don't understand you know we're bathed in clues but totally clueless is this a something you're explicitly going for in your books or is this just uh, the way you feel about the universe
3: probably just the way, way i feel about the universe but it's also i mean it's like there's a sort of uh, the cynical answer is actually it actually uh, i've always said it's far more interesting to describe a spacecraft that's covered in rust than than one that's kind of all shiny and chrome because there's lots more adjectives you can use when things are sort of crumbly falling apart. So I've always liked I've always been drawn to that sense of decrepitude and and lots of old things sort of bolted together that kind of more or less work but don't work reliably. Just, it's just far more interesting. But I think uh, the more serious answer would be that um, I think a lot of the science fiction I read and a lot a lot, a lot, of the science fiction that I was influenced by had that sense of antiquity, of layers of antiquity, and the future built on top of, of the past. I mean, in, in, in literary science fiction, I think the, the writer that I got the most sense of that from would be Gene Wolfe, because the books of The New Sun, which I read when I was at university, kind of feel like fantasy, and it's you, you sense that you're a long way into the future of this dying earth but gradually little bits of science fiction sort of intrude into the narrative and then you realize that uh, you know this this very very distant time is built on well, almost literally on these geological strata of, of different ages and I, I really love that and i love the fact that there were bits of technology weaponry whatever left over from more sophisticated times that the characters could could use and but not necessarily understand but uh, So you have, um, on the surface, it's kind of sword and sorcery, very Game of Thrones sort of stuff with with citadels and guys in cloaks with swords. But at the same time, very rich people have ray guns because they they've found ray guns. And and some people have flying cars because they're just leftover bits of leftover technology. And I love that. I love that sense of um, just just enormous uh, archaeological accretion of different layers. So that came into it. It's also in lots of Doctor Who as well, lots of classic Doctor Who. Have that sense of really, really deep time, deep, deep past. So I just absorbed it. I think.
0: Well, I find it fascinating, but also a bit painful because it gives you the sense that somebody knew these answers, somebody mastered these topics, and then the knowledge was just lost. And to me, that's a oh yeah, that's yeah. endlessly frustrating. Yeah. Um, but let me let me ask you since you are in a unique position, being in, in in both the academic community and the science fiction community, I have the sense that science fiction authors. Actively and realistically contribute to sort of progress in academic scientific research and engineering by coming up with sort of the craziest ideas on the edge of possibilities. Having been in both communities, how do you feel about the the way those two interrelate intellectually?
3: I didn't sense that exchange on a personal level in, in my experience as a, as a scientist. Uh, Had very little to do with science fiction because I was working in a you know particular fiddly little subset of astronomy and, and instrument science when I was working for the European Space Agency, sort of photon counting and things like that, which also played into astronomy. But I mean, I kind of kept my science fiction credentials to myself for a long time. So I didn't really, I wasn't sure how people would take it. And I've found as a general rule, some scientists are really receptive to science fiction and they love it. They, they, they've been stimulated by it and they, they see the potential in it. But others are re- they're really disdainful of it. And I d- you know I didn't want to run foul of the latter so I just I'm not going to make a big deal of this but since, since I stopped my former scientific career I've taken an interest in in this I mean I've sort of looked at for instance the the way that our scientific and literary understanding of the planet Mars has evolved over over sort of the last century and a half that's of interest to me I've, you know, I've done lectures on that because it's a real two-way process where science fiction and science have sort of moved hand in hand. Uh, our, our science fictional understanding of the universe, and with, with Mars as a case study, as has evolved, and sometimes lagged behind the science. Because sometimes, we, as writers, we're very attached to a particular image of something, and, and when the science upends that image, we often don't want to let go of it. But eventually, we come round to it. Eventually, and I think the you know with with, with Mars, you know there was there was a sense that we had to say goodbye to the the romantic idea of Mars of Edgar Rice Burroughs and even Ray Bradbury as somewhere where, where there might be civilizations and ruins and, and, and wonders. And we had to confront the idea that Mars was really just a, you know, a, a barely less hospitable version of our own moon. You know, it's a, uh, an arid, nearly airless uh, rock floating in space. But now we have, we kind of come to terms with that. And now we, now we can see the grandeur and the beauty in the real Mars. That eventually led to a whole second wave of science fiction books that drew their inspiration from uh, Viking and then subsequent uh, Martian expeditions, and that process has carried on. There's also sort of two-way traffic in the other direction, where you get little bits of science that that draw their inspiration from from science fiction. It's not as easy to trace those connections, but they're certainly there. I mean, on on one level, you have scientists who say, "I I, I became a scientist because I read science fiction. That's Probably to some degree true, true of me. I don't know, did you read science fiction
0: as you were? Absolutely, I did. I think that that's for me, the science fiction authors were the ones thinking about the deepest questions. You know, day-to-day science work, we're not answering big questions about the universe or making big discoveries. And so to sort of connect with the romance of the mystery of the universe, science fiction really taps into that much more directly for me than the actual, you know, research work that I do on a day-to-day basis. To me, that's why they, they provide a nice balance.
3: I mean, the, the one sort of case study that I can sometimes present to people as a clear case of science fiction shaping scientific thinking is when Carl Sagan was writing Contact, he wanted to come up with some plausible means of using uh, – uh, first of all, he had an idea of travel through black holes, and then he went to speak to Kip Thorne, and out of that came the idea that uh, a traversable wormhole was a much more interesting idea. And then Kip Thorne sort of – I think for, almost for his own – Sort of self-gratification came up with the sort of mathematics of, of traversable wormholes, with the idea that you need exotic energy to, to stabilize the throat. But that's still a whole viable discipline in I don't know what whether you call that particle physics or you know space-time physics, gravitational physics. But lots and lots of papers are still are still coming out with reference to traversable wormholes and the physics of wormholes. So that whole sub-discipline probably wouldn't have existed without at least the, the germ of a piece of science fiction. There, are, there are many, many other examples, but that's a really clear cut one. Well,
0: then let me ask you as a last question about your future work. I hear that you're working on a, a new novel in your Revelation space universe, which I'm very excited about. And I wanted to ask you, what makes you decide to sort of revisit a universe that you've created previously or to create a vast new intellectual playground?
3: I don't know. I, they, they just feel like itches that you've got to scratch and you can't fight it. You just have to go with the, the muse, <laughs> not to put too pretentious a term on it, but every now and again, an idea sort of, I mean, Stephen King says, you know, what's, the, what's the expression you use? Like the muse shats into your head and you've got it. It's a really horrible expression, but it's true. <laughs> you just can't predict it. And I've, I've always just been grateful that a, if you have a desire to write something, that's good. It's far better than waking up and having no ideas. Um, so I've always been quite grateful for the fact that the ideas keep coming, and, and I n- never complain about it. <laughs> uh, it's far better to mm. have too many too many books in the queue, if you like, than, than too few. But uh, yeah, I don't over I don't analyse it too too much. Really, I just like, go go with the flow, and uh, ho- hopefully, um, people are happy to go along with it and read them. Publishers are happy to publish them. Hopefully.
0: Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed them, and I've also very much enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you very much for taking your time to answer our questions and to uh, share your thoughts about writing and science and crazy aliens. Oh, it's my
3: very great pleasure. Thank you. Really great questions as well. We could talk all day, I think.
0: All right. Pretty
1: interesting. Pretty cool guy. And also, I, I just credit me. He has a, he has like a perfect name for for nautical adventures <laughs> and pirate pirate stories.
0: Yes, Alistair Reynolds and his Welsh accent, I guess, makes him sound a little bit like an yeah. old time pirate. No, he was really wonderful to talk to. So thanks, thank you, Alistair, for taking your time to talk to me and for letting us hear about the physics of your universe and what goes on inside your brain.
1: Yeah, we hope you enjoyed that, and hopefully, got you to think a little bit about what could be possible out there in even in the far future, millions of years from now.
0: That's right. So go out and check out his book. It's the Revenger Trilogy from Alistair Reynolds. He also has written many other wonderful books, including Chasm City and Revelation Space and Pushing Ice, which I also recommend.
1: Yeah. So thanks for joining us. See you next time. LED headlights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible
3: items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen.